Что, ребята, как дела? Что, тиха украинская ночь, да, как говорил великий украинский писатель? Все ли у вас хорошо, ребятки? Нравятся ли вам наши байрактары? Podcast, a series of conversations providing Western listeners with the background, context, and history to understand Russia's war on Ukraine. I'm Andrew Daniri, and with me as always are my co-hosts Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Today we're going to be talking about you know, an issue that's gaining you know, steam in terms of relevance in policy circles here where I am in Washington and around the country and across the Atlantic as well. And that's, you know, as Western countries provide more Western aid to Ukraine. People are starting to think about what happens, what, what's the effect of that with China, especially from the U.S. side, because you know, China, as we know, hasn't given up its designs on Taiwan as well. And you know, China is the U.S.'s peer, like top competitor in the, the medium to long term. So these are reasonable concerns. And to talk about this, we brought in our two China heads from our sister podcast, the Synopsis Podcast, which if you haven't subscribed, do it. Excellent China analysis from these same two dudes right here that run this Ukrainian podcast. So I'm going to moderate today. And as a moderator, I'm going to just kind of get out of the way and let these guys debate, discuss, and we'll uh, see where things take us. So Mike, why don't we kick it off to you with like, give us Give us the top line thoughts quickly on the debate and your thoughts on it. Um, so I think this debate has come to the forefront uh, because a number of alarm bells have been raised recently over Western defense procurement and the limits that we've bumped up against trying to supply Ukraine and keep it keep its war machine fed throughout this invasion. Um, especially vis-a-vis emerging potential conflict in the Middle East and in the Taiwan Straits, as you pointed out. Um, we're not entirely sure if America in particular can afford to fight on potentially three fronts simultaneously. Um, that said, I'm not here to make direct policy recommendations. I'm simply here to add a little bit of nuance into this discussion, primarily that the types of needs uh, for Ukraine are very different from the kinds of needs that Taiwan has. Um, and same with the Middle East. Um, and that's, that's pretty much what I want to explore today. Yeah, so um, we're going to get right into that. But I did want to provide our listeners kind of with a little bit of background and context to how this conversation came about, because I think it's actually going to help frame the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, Mike and I listened to a couple of other podcasts in common, um, most notably in this case, uh, Uncommon Knowledge and Call Me Back. Um, and kind of in back-to-back episodes of these two, as the timing um, turned out, they had Stephen Kopkin and Neil Ferguson on to kind of discuss the among many other questions, but um, <clears throat> the big one being the U.S.'s ability to simultaneously um, continue its commitments to Ukraine as well as, uh, y- you know, a new round of commitments to Taiwan in the event of a cross-straits uh, crisis. Um, and, you know, as these uh, shows came out, we were kind of uh, texting back and forth, Mike and I, in the group chat um, for this uh, podcast. And, um, you know, it kind of came about that Mike suggested, actually, that uh, we just kind of have a conversation about what we were talking about there, because um, <clears throat> it, it, as, you know, Mike and Andrew both said, this is really important. The, the, perhaps the biggest question geopolitically in the 21st century is, 
is the United States going to be capable to defend, to, to help defend both Ukraine and Taiwan in the event of a major military crisis in both simultaneously, not to mention the Middle East, as um, Mike said. So that's um, kind of how this conversation came about and, um, you know, a little bit of background and let's, um, you know, let's kind of dive right into it. Um, <clears throat> Mike, unless you want to jump in real quick, I was just going to keep going. But, um, you know, one of the 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 thing that set my alarm bells off is um it, it's really not necessarily the United States' political will in question, but its actual capacity to supply the material to both of these countries simultaneously. Um, you know, Mike, I'm sure he's going to mention the discrepancies between the type of material uh, used for the defense of both countries and that there's not so much of an overlap. So therefore, you know, as we're sending aid to Ukraine, um, it doesn't really diminish our capacity to provide aid to Taiwan. Um, and that's going to be a point of discussion. But the other thing is, um, <clears throat> you know, there, there's been a significant drawdown in the U.S.'s military stockpiles as a result of our uh, continued defense of Ukraine. And, you know, for the record, I think anyone listening to this podcast knows that we all consider that a good thing. Um, but, you know, my perspective, which is I think is a little bit different than um, Andrew and Mike's, is it's a question of a good thing to a point. And the right, it, it's sort of like right up until it diminishes the United States' ability to help defend Taiwan is right where I'm, you know, I'm starting to draw the line um, in terms of, because as they both said, China is the United States' number one geostrategic competitor. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the United States' manufacturing base and whether or not we have the ability to continue to resupply. But um, I've been rambling long enough and definitely yeah, uh, Mike, want to have... Let, let, let's yeah. get into this. Mike, you're kind of our weapons guy. Can you lay out, like, in, in like a general sense, what has the U.S. and the West been providing Ukraine in terms of weapons? Like, like give us a broad kind of overview. Uh, well, it started off with more portable uh, shoulder fire systems like the Javelin and the Stinger, stuff that your average schmuck uh, hiding in the bush can use to stand a chance against a tank or a Russian helicopter, right? Um, very light systems that we, uh, with the logic that we didn't want heavier, more advanced stuff to fall into the hands of the Russians because we expected the country of Ukraine to be overrun within the first you know, a few months of the war, which obviously did not happen. Uh, since we then, being this, very specifically the White House and the National Security Council. <laughs> yeah, you mean you, you and your friends over there in DC. Um, <laughs> but as the war's gone on, increasingly more complex systems have been sent. Um, this has been largely a land war. It's not to say that the uh, theater in the air and at sea has not been important. It has, but the majority, the vast majority of the combat has been. Uh, has been taking place on land. And so artillery has been the deciding factor in nearly every campaign thus far, um, with the exception of the sinking of the cruiser Moskva, which was accomplished with a handful of Bayraktar drones and some harpoons, right? Um, which is a very, very far cry from what Taiwan would need uh, to defend its shores. Um, so in general, we've been, we've been sending them like parts for their fighter aircraft. We've been sending them air defense systems, uh, which are continue to be the most requested systems by the Ukrainians. Um, artillery shells... Um, artillery barrels, self-propelled artillery. Um, you can see, you can see artillery is the running theme, of course. Uh, lots of small arms, Humvees, armored vehicles, armored personnel carriers, uh, and now we're of course discussing or have already made the decision to send heavy tanks such as the Leopards and uh, the Abrams. And I'm sure jets as well. Once we you know are done saying we're not going to send. Them. And I'm sure jets. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, <clears throat> kind of, kind of two points there. Um, you know, Mike's discussing, you know, keeps hammering um, artillery. 
and you know, for for listeners who are not really kind of um, familiar with the shape of combat, that that's obviously a land weapon. You know, you think of World War One trench uh, trench warfare style, um, and the back and forth that Mike and I were having was really pertaining to the fact that these sorts of munitions wouldn't necessarily be um, effective at the primary defense of Taiwan, which would be. Um, the ability to punch through presume, what would be presumably a Chinese naval blockade. Um, we, we discussed the potential invasion of Taiwan on the Synopsis podcast, but um, to kind of give a thumbnail sketch, and Mike, obviously jump in if I'm getting any of this wrong, um, <clears throat> you know, the first of all, the, the, the um, naval lift for the invasion of Taiwan would be exceedingly difficult, um, not only because that it, that is one of the most challenging types of warfare to conduct, um, a naval lift, but also the fact that um, the Taiwan Strait has lots of inclement weather and um, is really unsuited for this sort of uh, maneuverability like half of the year. Um, so the, the the initial shape of a potential invasion of Taiwan would probably involve a very heavy naval presence um, and an encirclement um, and choking off of the island, um, which then, after securing the perimeter of uh, the island of Taiwan, China would then be able to um, you know, really start to engage, um, trying to make that lift happen. And, you know, think of Normandy, um, like how incredibly bloody and brutal that was, um, you know, getting, getting um, U.S. personnel off the ships and onto the land. So something like that. And, you know, my point of contention with Mike when we were going back and forth was that, yes, in the initial stages of primarily naval conflict, a lot of these weapon systems would not be as effective. But A, that's not to say that they wouldn't be effective at all. Um, you know, it is sort of a question of like, if Ty- if just throwing numbers out there, um, the defense of Taiwan is 10 times more important to the United States strategic interests than the defense of Ukraine, but the weapon systems are only one-tenth as effective, then it actually nets out to being the same um, value for our strategic goals. Uh, we're at that point indifferent, to use um, some economist language, between um, supplying defense of Taiwan and supplying defense of Ukraine. The other point um, is that, you know, I think overly focusing on the naval blockade and initial naval stages of battle um, is too clean a picture of war insofar as, um, you know, oftentimes lines get breached and uh, shit hits the fan, for lack of a better term, and you need to be able to scramble um, on battlefield uh, scenarios that you weren't considering. And in those cases, I I think actually um, the material that Mike was talking about that we've been supplying Ukraine would be very effective, well, or at least, you know, reasonably effective at um, turning Taiwan into, it's called, you know, turning it into a porcupine is the term, um, for strategic defense of the island. Um, so, so with that, th- those are kind of um, my thoughts. And Yeah, okay. yeah I'll, I'll, I'll jump back in and just, just to go back to Ukraine, I mean, Mike's absolutely right that artillery is by far, you know, the most consequential, we- you know, weapon right now, kind of probably along with the HIMARS, those kind of shoot and scoot, like long range rocket systems that have Which is forced just fancy artillery, to be fair. Fancy artillery, right, but, but have forced the Russians to kind of move back or at least... Um, be a bit more cautious in their offensive maneuvers. Um, on the most requested systems, I do think that's changing a little bit. We have, you know, I think F-16s and the even longer range artillery, you know, F-16s fighter jets and the longer range artillery, the attackums, which can shoot, you know, 300 kilometers are, I think, becoming even more requested by the Ukrainians. And we can see exactly why, because they want to do this big counteroffensive in the spring and summer, and they'll need that kind of air cover. So my point very quickly would be, um, you know, if we're worried about artillery and about supplying, you know, a a two-front war, better to send more weapons sooner, like the F-16 and Attackums. But kind of with that framing, Mike, I mean, what, we've danced around it a little bit. What is the 
issue here with artillery and like U.S. supplying artillery to Ukraine? Where are we at with that? Um, if you'll allow me to return to that, the artillery question yeah. real quick. I'm just going to write it down so I don't forget. Um, I, I just want to like add one little thing before we launch in any further. Yeah, yeah. And that is that, um, you know, Sam brought up the hypothetical calculation of, okay, if Taiwan is 10 times more important to us than this weapon system that is one-tenth as valuable to them is still, you know, a, a net aggregate, or excuse me, uh, it still, like, evens out, right? Um, the thing is, like, the entire reason that I think everything that the United States is doing in Ukraine is done with an eye towards China and towards deterring it and sending a strong message, uh, and that needs to be valued into whatever conversation that we're having here. Um, you could argue with a exceedingly straight face that our pullout in Afghanistan, our disaster in Iraq, um, led directly to Putin feeling like he had the green light to invade Ukraine. Um, you could say the same thing about Obama drawing a red line in Syria and then failing to enforce it. You could say the same thing about Putin literally getting away with annexing Crimea back in 2014 with not so much as a peep, essentially, from the defense apparatus here. And so what we're trying to do right now is not repeat that same mistake with a far more formidable adversary in China. Okay, so with that out of the, out of the way, um, with the, uh, the artillery thing, um, Andrew, why don't you remind me, like, what direction do you want me to take this? Like, what would you like to, me to elaborate on with the? Just give us the problem in, like, simple terms. Like, like what, what is the issue or the potential issue that people are talking about in terms of, like, being able to supply, you know, enough artillery to Ukraine and then with the view on China as well? Well, we've struggled to – well, both Ukraine and Russia are now suffering under crippling ammunition shortages but also the supply of usable barrels – so artillery barrels have a life of about, you know, say a thousand shots or so. And after the thousandth shot, you have to replace the barrel. Those are in critical supply. Um, the, the tricky thing for Ukraine is they're also using a wide variety of systems. They were using the 152 millimeter Soviet standard systems uh, at the beginning of this war and quickly ran through all their Soviet stocks. Um, thankfully, there was a backlog of stuff, you know, piled up in the warehouses of former Warsaw Pact countries like Slovakia, Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, that they were able to like backfill Ukraine's needs for that particular type of ammunition. But the systems that Ukraine is getting now are more Western standard, NATO standard 155 equipment that can't make use of those shells. Um, and so I, I think like we have run into shell crunches very clearly in Bakhmut, like the needs that Ukraine has stated, like the, the amount of ammunition that Ukraine says it needs is something like 70,000 shells per month just to achieve parity with what the Russians are able to field right now. And there's no one who can really do that, or at least the systems haven't been uh, set up. Like you could theoretically supply those shells from U.S. allies, EU allies. So, so, so this this isn't, this isn't I don't, I, I don't want to interject too much, and this isn't me going to be talking a lot, but I think one thing, Mike, I do want to focus on, particularly in the, in the scope of this episode, is the question of, um, you know, the, the artillery that you're talking about and giving great detail on vis-a-vis -vis China is the main question that I want to address. And, you know, you're, discuss you're discussing the strategic mm -hmm. need um, within Ukraine, but I think it would be relevant for our listeners to discuss, you know, to give your um, best shake at the argument, which is why or why not this would or would not be helpful, how much, you know, in, in the defense of Taiwan. I, I think, you know... Yeah, give us the, like the, the domestic production side there, um, kind of on how we're supplying... Here, I would actually like, okay, so I would actually like to back up and describe the different theaters and why I see them as fundamentally distinct. Um, and it's it's dictated by geography, right? So Ukraine is entirely a land war, almost entirely a land war. The, the naval theater, as I said earlier, has been very, very limited. It took like one successful strike at the Russian fleet to 
then like blockade them back into their own port in Sevastopol. Uh, and the Russian fleet is now mostly a non-factor, except for the times that it leaves to launch like cruise missiles from range. Uh, in Taiwan, the entire fight is going to be dictated at the air, at the air and naval level. Um, in so like there was this pretty extensive war game analysis produced by CSIS recently where they, they iterated this like 24 different times. The methodology was pretty sound. I do have faith in it. It's kind of the gold standard for this uh, Taiwan scenario. And in, in nearly every single scenario, to Sam's point, yes, the Chinese managed to land some sort of a force on the island. The question is whether or not they can maintain that beachhead. And so the strategic imperative for the Americans, the Taiwanese, has a lot more to do with targeting Chinese ships. Um, whereas with Ukraine, it has a lot more to do with throttling Russian supply bottlenecks. Um, like by, you know, that's why HIMARS was such a big deal because it enabled them to reach out and blow up their already vulnerable logistics systems, like in the form of fuel dumps, ammo dumps. That they're already so, so HIMARS, HIMARS and artillery would these not be useful for the um, assault, the, the land to sea assault that you were discussing? They would, and again, the question isn't would these systems have any utility in China at all, or excuse me, in Taiwan at all. It's like where are they going to get more mileage? Is like the question that we need to ask ourselves here, um, and. You know, Taiwan clearly does see something like HIMARS as actually being potentially useful. Uh, the thing is, we don't actually have a shortage of HIMARS. Um, the alarm bells that we're talking about have been raised by things like, again, the artillery shells, which is rapidly being reversed, by the way, by the Europeans. So, you know, one of the strategic, one of the strategic goals of the United States to keep at the forefront is getting the EU to take care of EU-based security while we focus on China, right? Uh, currently, I see a lot of strong trends in that direction that the Europeans are actually doing exactly what we would like them to do. Um, yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I agree with that point, and I'm, I'm sure the, the EU is ramping up production, um, but it is kind of a, <clears throat> you know, from my perspective, it is kind of a question of how fast is actually not good just in a vacuum with regards to Ukraine, but how fast is, can they ramp up with regards to the U.S.'s ability to, so, to be more of the sole supplier of defense to Taiwan. This is another point that we were discussing, but um, the fact that, I mean, you know, maybe Andrew and Mike will disagree. I would say that the EU's support of um, Ukraine has been good, but really not at the level that it should be, um, particularly in terms of material supply. There's obviously been some economic aid, but the United States, I believe, is still leading that in addition to like way outstripping the Europeans in terms of any material. Um, and this is for a war on their doorstep. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you look at the primary trading partner by GDP for any European country, um, who, who, their, who their largest trading partner is, in most of the cases, it's not the United States anymore. It is China. And like, you know, it was like Russia was, uh, other, than the, other than the gas that was flowing um, to and fro from Russia to the EU, there was not significant trade going on with Russia. And still the EU's response was maybe good, maybe, but certainly less than I think many people would like it to be. It is going to be far worse of a case with China. Um, the EU, you know, even even before all this has signaled, you know, trying to be, um, you know, third third way or like not directly involved in US-China great conflict, um, great power conflict. And so, so, so this is my, my concern. We really need to be considering the US's ability to defend Taiwan pretty much, not, not by itself, but certainly without European help, like Australia, Japan, sure, those nations. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's why, um, and everyone wants the EU to do more, so I don't think it's like any great revolution revelation that I'm saying like, oh, the EU needs to do more, but it needs to do more specifically within this context because I don't think that we're going to be able to count on their support in the event of, um, particularly if China, China's invasion of Taiwan is something less than a total all-out war. Mike was discussing the war games um, by CSIS, but you know another I think 
common or not not common but um likely scenario from a lot of analysts expectations is something short of that primarily a um, blockade that is not initially kinetic in nature like china's not launching shells from the ships or whatever onto the island of taiwan but rather trying to choke it off and saying listen this is you know as china claims this is part of our territory you know we're not going to allow resupply united states munitions etc to um come to the island and you know a very crucial difference um between china and ukraine is that there's no poland right next to taiwan to help shuttle um material in and out so we have a much stricter deadline in terms of our ability to get what we can to taiwan because once that starts it starts like we the um yeah, yeah. The, the geography has made the supplying of Ukraine very favorable um, in terms of the West. And Andrew, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, I just want to make. I, I think you're absolutely right on the the EU point. I mean, EU um, economic aid and EU member country bilateral aid. You know, it's not at the same level um, as the U.S. is in terms. You know, that's economic and military aid. I mean, that's just true. Um, part of that is, you know, I think. We'll cut the EU a little bit of slack here. It is, you know, an organization based on consensus. By and large, you need kind of broad consensus on things like sanctions and um, in terms of packages of aid. Now, certainly, EU member states should have done more and can be doing way more bilaterally. I mean, Germans slowing down tanks is frankly bull. Uh, the Netherlands and saying, oh, we can't give tanks because. Germany won't let us. Switzerland saying we can't give parts, uh, not an EU member country, but uh, we're not going to let EU member countries give parts because then we'd be a party to the war. That um, absolutely is the small-minded policy thinking and absolutely something that we need to be thinking about um, in terms of how uh, the U.S. kind of rallies support going forward for Ukraine. But talking about partners like that, I wanted to ask you, Sam, like, you're absolutely right. Like ge- the geography around Taiwan is couldn't it's be more water. different, arguably. <laughs> it's not yeah, geography, right, right. It's water. Right. It's, it's it's water. It's not it's not land, right? Like, so um, what can like you know how can the U.S. maybe engage those Pacific allies you mentioned, Japan, Australia, South Korea, becoming a you know major military supplier? What? How do you see that? Well, I mean, you know, I think all of those nations that you listed um, are very committed to the defense of Taiwan um, I don't, for, for a number of reasons. I don't think South Korea is, but go ahead. Fair enough. Um, I've not looked into their specific situation. Um, you know, there's obviously the, the South Korea, Japan, Japanese bad blood due to all that rape and murder and slavery. But, um, you know, that's that's a different topic. But um, fine, putting South Korea to, to the side, um, you know, all of these nations um, – I would argue, are very committed to the defense of Taiwan uh, for a number of reasons. First, obviously, is the fact that, you know, first Taiwan, then them, presumably. Obviously, um, Japan and China have had uh, lots of bad blood also due to that rape, murder, and enslavement um, on Japan's part. So bad, bad Japan, very naughty. Um, But, you know, there's also the geostrategic picture, and we talked about this um, on the Synopsis podcast, so I'm not going to totally reiterate it here. But um, if China were to – Taiwan is so – is in such a precarious situation because it serves two aims towards China. One is the, um, you know, nationalistic political mean one that I think everyone knows about, which is, you know, China has said Taiwan is part of China um, and therefore must recapture it as a political imperative and part of like the the CCP's legitimacy in the eyes of the people. The other element is that um, Taiwan is part of what's known as the first island chain, which significantly constrains um, China's naval movements in the South China Sea and beyond. And were Taiwan to fall um, into China's hands, then um, that would significantly open up China's naval naval ability to move around the rest of the world, which for those countries, 
um, Australia, Japan, um, Philippines, etc., that would be disastrous for them geopolitically. Um, so I think those countries are very committed, but uh, again, those are um, you know different allies, and um, it also controls you know, the sea lanes that ninety percent of Japan's energy comes through. Like we've we've talked about the uh, the choke point of the Strait of Malacca in prior episodes, and how important that is to China. The same thing, like Japan utilizes the exact same inroads, basically. Their internet cables all run underneath the uh, the Strait of Taiwan. It's not to say that adjustments couldn't be made. I mean, theoretically, I, I guess you could just sail around the south end of Taiwan were it to come into Chinese control. Uh, Japan still has the has its island chains that come very close to Taiwan in that regard. But yeah, I mean, this is... It, it, uh, Japan's going to get dragged in if for no other reason than they're already basing a tremendous amount of U.S. military personnel, um, some of the largest air bases in the Pacific. We've got, I mean, you should, uh, you, you've all seen the maps, right? It's like five or six different bases all in Japan. Um, and in just about every single scenario where we have to go to a war with China, if we do not have use of those bases in Japan, we're screwed anyway. We're not going to have the ability to project power um, at the rate that we need to to actually contest an invasion successfully. Um, and it's very likely that the Japanese are going to allow us to do it, and then the Chinese will feel like they have to strike them, and if the Chinese strike one, they might as well strike them all, and then they're striking homeland Japan. I think they get roped in against their will, like, with or without their will, is what I'm trying to say. Australia, I think, joins automatically, just like ideologically. I don't think they can stay out of this one. Um, that, yeah. But that's, just, that's just my two as, as a very quick, like, one sentence on that, and keep going. Um, you know, Australia, in, in terms of ideological, like, they have committed to economic self-harm by virtue of Chinese sanctions against their um, exports just because they're like, nah, China's bad dude. We want to know where the origins of COVID were. And Australia and uh, China's like, okay, fine. We won't import your coal or wine or anything like that. And Australia's are like, fine. You know, fuck you, cunt. It's <laughs> <laughs> like 30% of our exports. Yeah, no, they, they took a yeah, significant exactly. they took a significant economic hit just for messaging's sake. Um, but and, they all, and, but, and, and real quick, but you compare that to something like the EU, you know? The EU, which by its very nature, nature is a little bit more fractious and raucous and nationalistic. And it's a lot like... I think I think one of the big issues with EU defense procurement is that it's primarily driven by like nation states are still the main actors and it's driven by their own regional interests. For example, um, one area where we actually do have some interesting bits of cooperation vis-a-vis China is that Italy has jumped in on a sixth-generation fighter project with Japan and the UK. Uh, part of that's because they all have overlapping maritime interests. These are all fundamentally maritime countries. You wouldn't think of Italy that way, but Italy sees control of the Mediterranean as a as an imperative, right? Um, so in areas like that, there's some overlap, but then you get things like the French that think it's acceptable to pump out one artisanal, like Caesar artillery system every three months, and like that will suffice for counterinsurgency in Africa. Well, you're not going to wage a land war in you know, this highly active attritional conflict on the eastern border. Whereas, like, the army that Poland's put together is basically a reflection of what they're going to be fighting against, right? It's very rocket artillery heavy. It's very artillery artillery heavy. It's got, you know, modern air force for the most part. Lots of tanks they're sourcing from the South Koreans at this point. So um, you're not going to be able to, like, get that kind of economy of scale with all these different priorities, like, forcing you to fracture your supply chain, like, You'd think that we could just source the cheapest components from Bulgaria and then the nice computer chips off in Germany like we do with cars right now. But everyone can pretty much drive the same kind of car, but every European country has a different perceived self-national interest. And so you Right. So, so I agree with that, but I think, you know, my central critique is, well, why the hell is that the case? Because, you know, this is a war on their doorstep that, you know, I think even – even the most isolationist, dim-witted amongst them can see, like, you know, if this spills over, it could be very bad for their national interests and national sovereignty. So why are we sovereign, – sovereignty. Um, so why are we allowing these nations to have this fractious policy, which I think is really only a result of them not really feeling the constraints of coming under the weight of their own poor decision-making? What do I mean by that? Like, you know, if 
Germany was getting invaded or like this this war was closer to their I think their foreign stance would be much different you know they I, I think fundamentally you know the German political class I don't know about the people or whatever um, would be very happy if they could be assured of the containment of the invasion of Ukraine simply to Ukraine. I think they would be pretty happy to just let that slide and continue, you know, to receive cheap gas exports from um, Russia. So, so, you know, you say like the EU is more fractious, it's more divided, but like why, like that's, that the premise of that statement is really unacceptable to me. And I don't think that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's no, it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. And I, I do think the, the one good thing that's come out of this is, um, Every time Europe fails to deliver on some of the military commitments they've made, that they slow down, the smart people in those governments realize, oh shit, our militaries are actually not that good. The Germans, I think, are now realizing we're actually not the same military power as we were however many decades ago. We're actually, um, our military is constrained, we're inefficient, we don't have the capabilities and the, the amount of capabilities. Um, that we thought we once did, and I. They I spend think they're significantly not, more than the Italians and have a significantly worse military as a result. Uh, of like all their, exactly, of all their boondoggles. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, okay, acceptable or unacceptable, it is the reality of the situation right now, and I'm not really sure what the United States can realistically do short of leaving Ukraine out hanging to dry in this scenario, which is also not acceptable because uh, you'd have you'd have Chinese warships sailing from port tomorrow. I think if we did that. At least that's my understanding of the situation. Um, it's not to say that parts of the EU aren't picking up the slack. Poland is re-procuring and modernizing and industrializing about as fast as it's possible to do with goals of achieving potentially 4% GDP spent on defense. Uh, Finland, obviously, is, has never slacked. Uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, a lot of these former Warsaw Pact nations have nearly doubled their production of artillery shells since the war started. Um, there are a lot of positive signs in the right direction. It's not uniform across all the EU. Um, Germany announced this 100 billion like spending increase, but so far it hasn't really amounted to very much. And you know, no amount of their own domestic constraints can explain to me why they have to block other countries from sending leopard tanks uh, that were for, that were like given to them to do as they see fit, right? Like, I, like that, I still don't understand. Um, so I do share, I do share your frustrations. I just, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. And then again, like, just want to harken back. I don't see the aid that we provided to Ukraine so far as significantly infringing on Taiwan's ability to defend itself. Um, things like HIMARS, things like ATACMS, things like you know these self-propelled artillery systems are just not going to play the decisive role in Taiwan. That's going to be played by the air and naval forces. That's going to be played by standoff, like anti-ship missiles. Yeah, so, so you know, two things. One, in terms of like what can we do about it, I think, um, and this was something Stephen Kopkin was saying on um, the Uncommon Knowledge episode that I took exception to as well, and you know, far be it for me to sound to pretend that I know, you know, one one hundredth that man does. But, you know, in any negotiation, the party that is unwilling to walk away is the party that's going to lose. And I'm not saying that we should walk away from our commitment to Ukraine, but like, you know, being a little bit more rambunctious about it, like one thing that you could actually say in defense of Trump's foreign policy is that, you know, well, ultimately his, um, you know, noises that he made towards Europe didn't actually help contribute towards um, Europeans' increase on defense spending, but it certainly, you know, increased the, the jawboning that the French and the Germans did about, like, an EU joint defense and something like that. And if we're not able to, you know, strike a aggressive um, negotiation tone with the EU saying, like, listen, we could pull out, you know, then I, I think you are just going to get those domestic politics run amok in, in, in those countries, Germany, France, etc. And, you know, Mike, you're talking about all, you know, Bulgaria, Hungary, 
you know, I'm very glad that they're increasing their, um, you know, production to 4% of GDP. But if you look, but, you know, France and Germany are the twin engines of Europe and a, a increase of the smaller nations GDP from two to 4% is not going to have the same effect of even increasing the French defense um, production from one to 2%, just in terms of raw numbers, um, uh, you know, assuming $1 of GDP uh, spent towards defense is as good as the other. So, so there's there's that, and I mean, you know, the second thing is that we were going back and forth on the text, and it's like, I think, you know, I think you are a little bit oversimplifying the defense of Taiwan to that first first action in the in the war. Um, you know, the the Taiwanese island is very mountainous and is going to involve a lot of urban warfare. Um, you know, all all over it. It's it's also relatively big. Um, you know, were the um, Chinese to break through. And I think a lot of these defensive systems actually do have the range on the ground to be able to play in the defense. And it's, it, it um, <clears throat> you know, and it is really a question of like, say something were to happen, can we help Taiwan defend itself on the ground long enough to ensure that if we were to get, you know, receive a knockout blow, not a knockout blow, a knockdown blow um, in the naval or air theater, can, do we ha- do we, can we supply them with the defense for long enough for them to regroup and then we can get back in the fight? Yeah. Uh, one point just to um, – on your, your previous comment, Sam, there on you know, U.S. <clears throat> being able to, to walk away and bringing along partners, I do think one thing that is keeping the U.S. in the fight is just how great our interests are in defending Ukraine against Russia. I think it's not, nece- it's not necessarily a, a – you know, we're doing this for Europe. We're also doing this for us. Um, and, and that's a, a big point of the discussion there. But on your point to the um, to the maritime theater, you know, the, or, or you know, maybe it, maybe it is a bit more urban warfare in Taiwan. But Mike, on this, like thinking about the first stage or two, right, of you know a potential Chinese attack on Taiwan, like if it is, you know, if we are talking about maritime and air warfare, like do we have enough to defend Taiwan right now? Where are we at? We do, but not without substantial losses. Is the is the short answer? So, like the the basic overview of of the uh, Taiwan campaign, and and by the way, I do want to like before I go too deep into Taiwan, like it's worth mentioning that it's equally possible that a war starts out over the South China Sea, which is quite far removed from Taiwan, um, and that would be that would be exclusively land and air. The islands that are there are so tiny, like you could basically fire support from a ship alone. You don't like you would land troops, but it wouldn't. You be, mean you mean naval and you mean naval and air? Right? Naval and air. Excuse me. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be it wouldn't be anything like the the fights at Okinawa or Iwo Jima that you know, took tens of thousands of U.S. casualties to achieve. Um, but focusing in on Taiwan, like, China has focused most of its efforts on creating this massive area denial bubble from, like, ground, primarily, like, ground-launched precision-guided missiles, uh, far more accurate, far more numerous than the ones that the uh, Russians are using, which is why, for example, something like the Patriot missile system makes a lot more sense for Ukraine because it can't effectively be targeted, but a static defense position like that in Taiwan is going to get wiped out in a day, more than likely. Like, all the recommendations coming down say, like, you need something that can shoot and scoot and hide in the mountains, hide in the urban environment in Taiwan to stay to stay alive. Um but anyways, the uh, the threat bubble has been pushed out to the point that like missiles can basically target Guam. Guam is nowhere near Taiwan. Like pull out a map, it's th- it's like it's probably well <laughs> over a thousand miles. Um, pull and, out a map. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you pull it out. I can't I can't describe it to you. Um, and that's what's limiting the effective range of things like our air our, our aircraft or aircraft carriers themselves. Like our navy can't get that close without 
dire threat. Like in nearly every scenario that the CSIS ran, we lost at least two aircraft carriers. Like this is going to be a serious fight. Now it's even more dire for the Chinese. The, like the basic, uh, the basic calculus is like, okay, China's going to get some troops on the beach. Can they supply and maintain and expand that bridgehead? Can they keep their fleet alive, ferrying things back and forth long enough uh, to not get overrun uh, in response? And the answer appears to be at present no, because they have no way to counter some of the capabilities that we do currently have um, launching out of bases like in Japan. Uh, also, Taiwan has like something like 400 harpoon missiles that it just ordered, which are going to be pretty useful. They've got submarines that the Chinese have trouble dealing with. Um, there's a range of capabilities that they're bringing. I, I know I'm getting a little far afield of your original. Yeah, point. no, no. no. So, 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 so on, on one on one sentence, you know, you said you said the the missiles that they ordered, but that's actually a crux of the issue with Taiwan. Um, you know, the my understanding is that they actually have tons of munitions on order from the United States, but due to our current commitments, we are actually having trouble supplying that. And again, you know, my major concern is we are not going to have a Poland land border with um, Taiwan to be able to def- ship these systems over once the shooting actually starts. So, um, you know, with regards to that, I think if the United States is not currently capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time, we either need we either need to decide what's more important, the walking or the chewing gum, or figure out how we can do that. And right now, um, you know, my understanding is that we're just not equipped to do that. And, you know, you, you both have touched on the topic of production, but um, U.S. production of munitions is really not what it once was. Um, you know, my, my, I think the quote is like, we've used up seven years of productions of uh, javelins or HIMARS or something. Javelins. Um, in this, yeah, javelins in this first year of war in Ukraine. And, one to seven. Like, what, what does that mean? That means like our production capacity is not at pace to be able to actually continue to supply um, Ukraine, let alone Taiwan, um, under our current production capacity. And you know, this is not a people have in their mind. I think the image of the United States after Pearl Harbor and World War II, when we were able to shift production um, entirely from you know we, the Ford factory st- stopped rolling out cars and started rolling out tanks. Um, our capacity to do that is much diminished. Um, and there's a lot of like economics that go behind it. But first of all, um, you know, there was an explicit drawdown in defense production after um, as as the United States merged into a unipolar war after the end of the Cold War. Um, you know, and the defense that we needed insofar as we didn't need it at all because it was the end of history, um, <clears throat> you know, was targeted towards the small-scale uh, conflicts that we had in the Middle East and stuff like that. So, and th- this is not um, – sorry, Andrew, I got okay, no, you're good, you're good. points on this. Um, you know, and this is not from, from my mouth. This is like official Pentagon um, instruction for the defense contractors. Another thing to consider um, relative to uh, World War II era United States is that our production uh, – you know, insofar as there is production in the United States, and there is still plenty, um, you know, manufacturing as a percentage of GDP has been relatively flat, but the combination of capital and labor inputs needed to pr- produce in the United States has changed dramatically. Um, we are a much more specialized high-end manufacturer that involves a lot more high-end capital inputs. Um, and those, the difference is is that those cannot easily be switched to, um, between um, production types, like you know, in World War II, it was the, the assembly line was mostly dudes like soldering, soldering, um, you know, on an assembly line. It was it was a very human labor intensive um, production. Whereas now it's very specialized, and the tools um, for production are not really there to have that shift going. So even if there was was a um, Pearl Harbor moment where there was political consensus in the United States that we needed to shift production, we would not have the bones in place to be able to do it like we did in World War II. And and last sentence, in the, I'm sorry, I'm monologuing, and that's what gives me the great concern, is that we are, like, even if 
something were to happen that we all agreed we needed to take, and we all agreed on the action that we needed to take and that we needed to take it, I don't think our capacity is there anymore right now. And that thus, um, you, you know, and Andrew, you said, um, you know, it, it's in the United States interest to defend Ukraine. I agree. I'm doing this podcast. I think that's very obvious. But um, it is a question, you know, the, the eternal economics question um, is compared to what? And I, I'm, you know, up until our ability to achieve our strategic interests in the defense of Taiwan are diminished. I'm happy to support Ukraine, but insofar as those two priorities come into conflict, then I think we need to have a real serious discussion, which is um, why we're here today. I, I mean, I think that America's focus continues to be on the Pacific, though, and that is part of what's limited the arms that we have sent to Ukraine thus far. Um, but this, but even some of the more simple systems that we've sent there have had a tremendous impact in a way they, that they just simply would never have in China. Like, we sold the Ukrainians one weapon system like the high Mars with the Gimler's rockets attached to them that fundamentally reshaped battle, battlefield and led directly to Ukraine retaking the only major oblast center that had fallen to the Russians during the course of the war. Like they literally lost Kherson because they couldn't keep their their troops supplied across the Antonovsky Bridge because it was blown to smithereens by the high Mars. And then all their d- depots were forced to disperse and retreat further back, which greatly complicated. Now you got now suddenly you got like trucks instead of trains that are burning more fuel and breaking down. And by the way, they're relying on Scooby Doo vans now because everything going through the countryside is getting shot up by AKs. It's just, it's it's gotten re- out of hand. And all we did was sell them, like, was grant them Gimler's rockets on the high marks, right? We haven't even, like, if Attackums get involved, like, imagine what that's going to do. That's a 300, that's that's more than tripling the range of the Gimler system. Um, so, like, I, I, like, I want to highlight, like, the relatively low impact of what sending them less than 10 high mark systems equipped with these munitions did. All right, so... Just bear that in mind, because like I don't think you're going to get the same level of impact out of like poking a couple rockets onto like Chinese troop concentrations on the beach. It's just not going to work the same way. You're no, I, I agree. So, the, so the, the only thing I'll say, and then I want to have Andrew um, moderate a little bit, but uh, is um, I think too few people are considering the formulation that I had at the top, which is, is it is a question of not only efficacy of the defense system, but like the relative importance of the defense of Taiwan versus the relative importance of the defense of Ukraine, which is again important, but compared to, like. We are in great power competition with China, and I do not think we are in great power competition with Russia. Russia is, especially now, a very declining power, whereas China, you know, we've discussed the demographics and everything on the Synopsis podcast, but China has another 10 plus years of being like a real possible potential issue. Um, And in the same way that I don't think Russia, like as we've seen, Russia was not by their invasion of Ukraine. I want to make like one quick point on this and then, and then. Sam, I think that's a really interesting point. Maybe we can end um, the discussion on, on you know, com- some final comments there. I think, Sam, some of the issues that you described in terms of you know, U.S. defense production um, are already being addressed, not necessarily well. But, for example, javelins were off the production line for years. And you know, we had seven years kind of laid up and sent them all away, and now the production line is starting again. Uh, so I, I think there is, you know, we are getting back into this. There is an undue amount of friction uh, between defense contractors and U.S. government and Congress and kind can of how I, that money is appropriated and contracted. Can I jump in with another example, Andrew? Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for all the talk of Europe and, and Germany, especially like not being able to wean itself off of Russian gas, they did. Necessity is the mother of all invention. For all the talk of all the liquid natural gas terminals that weren't in existence beforehand, Germany has constructed three 
three this year, floating natural gas terminals. Like I'm on record on this podcast saying that it was not going to happen and it did. So like these things can change very rapidly. Like the Berlin airlift evolved from like a trickle of supplies to like unfolding over 90% from its original. Uh, anyways, I'm not, I'm not stating that perfectly, but um, these types of things can change very rapidly when you uh, find your, your back up against the wall. I know that's nothing to like make promises with, um, but like I do think that we're starting to see some of the changes that were asked for. Um, I don't think it's all doom and gloom just yet. Um, and frankly, I don't think that like the, obs- the the basically obsolete Stinger missile system and the Javelins and all the stuff that we're sending to Ukraine is going to play that pivotal role in China. Um, that's just that's just my uh, my account. Yeah, I'm going to try to thread the needle here and get you get your guys uh, last thoughts here. Um, you know, what like you know, I think it's really interesting kind of looking at these these two theaters. You know, I'm obviously focused on Ukraine, you guys are focused on both, frankly. Um, so I think this is uh, you know, exactly the right conversations to be having. Um, you know, I see Sam when I listen to you talking about, you know, having to balance these two interests, right? You know, US obviously China is is a greater threat, a greater um, you know, power, frankly, in terms of competition. But I wonder if, you know, there's a way to ramp up production and support uh, military support of Ukraine now so as to, as you said, you know, really make sure that Russia is not a great power and is not um, a threat and that we can actually then focus on China once Russia is defeated. This was, you know, there was a, the Biden administration had this, oh, let's park Russia and focus on China strategy back in 2021. And that was based on just, you know, kind of trying to ignore the problem rather than address it and then move to the next one. Now we have to address the Russia problem. And I think, you know, if we can address this and help Ukraine win, then I think absolutely, you know, the way I see it, um, it would be prudent to then focus, you know, on China. But eager to hear your thoughts and then we'll wrap. Yeah, so so I'm going to actually push back on the when we wrap because there's one topic that we haven't um, discussed that I do want to bring up real quick um, before we're done. So my- I'll, I'll say my thing, Mike. Say you say yours, and then um, I'll, I'll flag something. But um, so <clears throat> my my basic premise for this argument is that we actually don't have the consensus of the United States necessary at the moment to do what you are discussing. Like in an ideal world, yes, I would like to see U.S. Um, defense bolstered to the point that we can do you know the two and a half wars that was the doctrine up until I think the mid 2000s or something when we really shifted um to unitheater with maybe something on the side in the Middle East um and you know we do not have the political like Ukraine is a like I think 60 40 plus issue in the United States right now probably more but that support has been declining over the course of the year and I don't think the the, the U.S. people as a whole have in them the ability to commit to the multi-year um, buildup of defense that would be required to be able to support multiple theaters um, materially and maybe even in terms of personnel um, if conflict with China were to break out. So that, that's kind of the, the premise that I'm starting from, which is like, okay, given that we don't have the ability, uh, the political consensus to ramp up production to the point where we need, how are we best going to shepherd the supplies that we do have? Um, and given a um, constrained production capacity, I think 
I think the fundamental question everyone needs to be asking themselves is, are we going to do better for ourselves, not for the Ukrainian people, unfortunately, but for the, but for the American people, if we are sending defense um, to Taiwan versus defense to Ukraine? And, um, you know, again, that form the formulation that I use at the top is really the way I'm looking at it, which is um, <clears throat> the defense of Ukraine is obviously important and something I'm very much behind. But I think the defense of Taiwan is significantly more so, and we need to account um, for that when we're deciding where to ship um, the material that we do have, which we are currently limited in our ability to produce. Yeah, I would push back slightly on the um, U.S. support for Ukraine. I don't think it's a, a static issue, and I think there's all sorts of factors that play into that. Number one, um, communicating why this is important to the American people. I don't think that's been done well and could certainly um, tap into to greater support there. Mike, your thoughts on Sam's comments? I mean, I'm actually totally in alignment. It's just the devil's in the details here. Like, China is the great, China is the true existential threat. Um, I think Russia continue, will continue actually to pose a larger threat that we're giving it credit for. Like, if we do theoretically get tied up with China, all Russia has to do is maybe poke at Estonia, and then what, what's NATO going to do if we're not involved directly, if we're completely tied up on the other side of the world? Uh, Russia also continues to maintain a very formidable presence on its flanks with its air and naval capabilities. Its submarines have not been used in Ukraine for obvious reasons but they do still have, uh, retain that capability. So like they could easily threaten our allies like the UK. They could easily threaten Norway. They could easily threaten anything in the Arctic or the North Sea. Um, so leaving that to the side, again, I, I, I also want to raise the alarm bell in regards to this defense procurement. I'm just looking at very different systems that I would like to see ramped up. Like our shipbuilding capacity is pathetic compared to what it used to be in World War II. And to Sam's earlier point, like we're not going to be able to do what we did in World War II necessarily by just converting civilian factories into military factories because we don't have many civilian factories anymore because we offshore them everywhere. Um, so that, that, yeah, like you, we really do need to start planning for a war at least five years in advance if we're going to have a realistic chance of keeping it supplied. And like even though all these war game scenarios end with an American victory, they also end with substantial American losses, which has consequences for security around the globe in our near abroad. Um, and you don't get to decide when these wars end. Like these war game scenarios end very neatly within a month or two. Who's to say this doesn't become like some perpetual great power pissing contest between China and the United States to decide who's going to be top dog? That's basically what's happened in Ukraine and Russia right now after getting you know, thwarted on their initial thunder run into Kiev, the Russians doubled down and turned this into a trench war, um, taking significantly more casualties than caused them to run with their tails between their legs from Chechnya and Afghanistan. Like They've shown a tremendously greater stomach for casualties this time around, so we don't know what's going to happen with China. Um, and we need to be prepared to replace ships at a tremendous rate, which we're just not doing. Um, but again, we're not selling the Ukrainian ships, and we're not selling them long-range precision anti-ship missiles. We're not selling selling them B-52 Strato Fortresses. Like it's 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 a very different ball game with very different effects. Um, and so I just like to like temper our concerns with that. Um, most of the most of the concerns that were like really breaking the news lately was over javelins, it was over stingers, and it was over uh, artillery munitions. Um, I'm not saying those things don't have a use. Particularly the javelin has been requested by Taiwan. Um, but I just wanted to layer that extra nuance on top. Like, it's not a one-to-one -one trade off by any means. Like, a weapon that goes to Ukraine versus one that goes to Taiwan. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't detract one for one. Just on your discussion of uh, the, the combat, there's the great HR McMaster quote, which um, would be remiss not letting our listeners hear, which is, uh, victory is convincing the enemy that they've been defeated. And their, Russia's continued um, belligerence is obviously does not fall under that definition. Um, there's, there was one other topic kind of parallel to 
what we've been discussing that I did want to raise briefly, um, you know, if we're, if we're out of time, that's one thing, but, um, you know, I think we've got a few more minutes, which is the question of whether or not China has actually been strengthened by um, what's gone on in Ukraine. You know, I think the conventional wisdom right at the outset when the Ukrainians were able to uh, mount a compelling defense of their country was that, oh, this is actually going to be a net deterrent effect on China because they've seen that, you know, these authoritarian countries can't um, so easily swallow up uh, the targets that they'd like to. Um, you know, and oh, look at the great, you know, united defense of um, Ukraine from the West. And, you know, the, this will really give Xi Jinping uh, pause before he invades Taiwan. Um, I think over the past year, that shifting, that um, thinking has actually shifted more into um, something along these lines, which is a weakened China is tremendously beneficial. Uh, excuse me, a weakened Russia is tremendously beneficial to China um, and could actually help it in the near term. Um, first of all, you know, China has territorial ambitions with Russia, as we um, have discussed on the Synopsis podcast previously. Um, minor, but like it is there. You know, the, China and Russia did fight a war when they were both communists. Um, as well as the fact that, uh, you know, if China were to decide to launch an invasion of Taiwan, I think they would be tremendously strengthened by a vassal state um, in terms of Russia, which Russia is more and more becoming as the sanctions um, continually isolate Russia from the global economy. And Russia has shifted much or almost all of its, um, not all, a majority of its oil exports to China, which is happy to bust um, U.S. and international sanctions on it. So, um I, and I know, Andrew, I know this is a little bit of a blind side for you, but Mike, this is something we've discussed um, before, but I'd love to get uh, both of your guys' thoughts on that. I mean, I more or less agree that the relationship between Russia and China, as we even covered on, I, th I think it was this podcast, maybe it was the synopsis where we covered Russia-China, um, is that Russia sends stuff and China sends money. Um, and China consumes a lot of stuff and also has a lot of money. And so having a partner like that, a dedicated partner, is very useful for them, um, especially when that partner can no longer sell its stuff westward like it once relied on. Like the European energy market was by far Russia's biggest repository for its oil and gas, and now that has shifted to India and China. Um, but I, I don't really have any uh, anything else to push back on there. I mean, it's uh, traditionally the one material thing that Russia was well, excuse me, the one, like, technological gift of the Russians to the Chinese was in, like, aircraft engines and uh, naval engines, things like that. Um, but at this point, the Chinese are kind of producing their own kit that's as advanced as what the Russians are able to. They finally caught up in parity, and it's cheaper for most, by most regards. They also have more buyers for their stuff. Russia's having a tough time getting buyers for their equipment, and so that's driving their costs up. So, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I think it's highly unlikely that Russia gets involved in any Chinese confrontation with the United States, at least not... Uh, directly in the Pacific theater, maybe peripherally in Europe, but that's an aside. Um, so yeah, I would agree with the assessment. Yeah, and Andrew, if you wanted to jump in, but there was just, just like one thing I kind of wanted to just flag, and I, I said this before, but like really highlight, which is, um, you know, one of the one of my initial rationale for the full-throated defense of Ukraine, in addition to the fact that it's a morally just cause, is that I actually thought it played significantly into the United States' interest by providing that deterrent effect towards China. But um, as that rationale comes more and more into question. It's not obviously saying it's not a question of not supporting Ukraine, but it is something that does need to kind of be considered in the, the whole scheme of things, especially when it also does butt up against potentially, um, you know, as we've been disagreeing about today, um, the relative supply of uh, material to the two countries. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the one point I would make is that China's been eating Russia's lunch in Russia's own backyard for the past decade. Like China's been eating up Russian industry in Siberia and in the Far East. Uh, frankly, Moscow doesn't give a about the eastern provinces and China sees that as an opportunity. So we're kind of already shifting that way before uh, the big invasion. Um, but again, no, I, I 
wholly agree. And I do think, uh, you know, China's going to, China and India are going to buy as much cheap Russian oil as they can get their hands on. And, you know, that, that will be a boon for China's economy. Um, but again, all of that, I think, is even more justification for doubling down on, you know, support for Ukraine. And as we, I think we're all kind of in violent agreement here, focusing, you know, over the next year, five years, 10 years um, of being ready for the U.S. to, to defend you know, Taiwan. Um, so, so one thing I just want to push back on is you said the Chinese consumption of Russian oil is obviously an economic benefit. And I know we're running long and we can close out in a second. But um, you said it's an economic benefit, but it's actually more than that. It's a geostrategic interest for China. Um, one of China's main concerns is its total reliance on foreign energy. Um, it is the world's largest net ec- net importer of energy. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think one way to read China's uh, green movement within the country, um, nuclear energy, solar panels, wind, all that sort of stuff is actually is not so much their desire for you know, CO2 re- emissions reductions, but rather a desire to be able to produce whatever energy they can domestically. Um, so the Russian um, supply of energy towards China is not just an economic concern, but a geopolitical concern, because if China were to engage you know, in the shenanigans in the uh, Taiwan, Taiwanese Strait um, that it's considering, then Securing its own energy um, for that point in time and into the future is going to be a major concern for China. Um, And having a subservient Russia that is all too willing to supply China with um, energy because that's the only that's really the only buyer outside of India, that major buyer outside of India, um, is is a geostrategic concern that we need to be considered with as well. Michael, any last words? So I, I I do I do have one thing that I think we've left out of the conversation, um, which is a bit tangential, but is also what's driving the conversation. In all honesty, um, and it's the likelihood the like the likelihood of a Chinese attempt at Taiwan. Honestly, if you had asked me a year ago, I would have been less than fifty fifty saying that it was going to happen. Uh, I think Sam and I both, having watched this for a while, are beginning to think that. Um, just because the economics incentives aren't there, bro, doesn't mean that Xi Jinping doesn't value other things. and doesn't mean that the army he specifically has built to invade Taiwan is not going to make an attempt at invading Taiwan. Uh, there is one <laughs> – I see Sam laughing. Um, it's like sometimes they this – was, This was a meme. This, this was, was a meme. meme. <laughs> Some, sometimes they tell you who they are and we just choose to ignore it. And that's just silly, which is why I think like a clash in the Middle East is actually inevitable between Israel and Iran. That's beside the point. Um I think China is going to make some sort of an attempt. We don't know what that's going to look like. If I were Xi Jinping, I probably wouldn't go all in on a full-out invasion right off the bat because, you know, you you could lose your whole army doing such a thing. But you could try a soft blockade of Taiwan and dare the U.S. to come after you. Um, And if we forward deploy too much to try and provide deterrence, the problem with great deterrence is it also provides a great target. Uh, That's why, like, Pearl Harbor happened in the first place. We moved our fleet from San Francisco over to Hawaii and – gave it gave the, the Japanese the opportunity to strike it in the first place. And in most of these war game scenarios, most of our losses occur, uh, at least with aircraft, like on the ground because they're forward deployed to places like Guam and Japan. I think if this actually pops off, we're not going to have a lot of time to make the decision. And to Sam's earlier point, which is absolutely correct, the Ukraine model is not going to work. Taiwan is surrounded by water and the missile threat is so tremendously lethal that you're not getting anything into that island once the war starts off and the Chinese decided you're not going to do it. Not until they've been defeated. And it's a nuclear-armed power. We're not going to land and, like, destroy their missile sites on the ground. That's just not going to happen. And that raises another, like, 
point of concern that I want to lay out for people. Like traditionally, great power conflict has been solved by either destroying the enemy's army or capturing their capital or whatever. But in the age of nukes, no one's going to invade Moscow. No one's going to invade Beijing. Like how are you actually going to get one of these great powers to capitulate? We need to be prepared for something drawn out and nasty. And I would much rather us deter that with a really, really big stick to begin with than have to actually do it. That's a perfect, that, that's a perfect way to end it. Sometimes they tell you who you are, who they are. And, uh, you know, it's up to us and in, in the United States and in the West to be ready for all comers in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, in Ukraine. There's a lot of badness out there, Beijing, Moscow. So with that, we wanted to thank our listeners for turning into another episode of the Ukrainian Provcast. The next episode will likely be a mailbag where we answer all the questions that we've gotten from you, our listeners, over the course of, you know, coming up on a year, honestly, of this show. Uh, so please email any of those questions or hate mail to ukrainianprovcast at gmail.com. That's the ukrainianprovcast at gmail.com. And if your question goes into the same military esoterica in the South Pacific as we talked about on air, we will also read that on air because that's exactly the type of content we're looking for here. On behalf of Mike, Sam, and I, we'll be back again with another episode soon. But in the meantime, keep up the fight. The Ukrainian Provcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Audio production by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach. Oh,